Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to be here as a guest speaker under the invitation of General Macau and the museum. I believe you have heard a lot, a lot of the air battle stories. And you know a lot, a lot of air battle stories too. But tonight, I'm going to give you a different story about the air battles or air war in Korea from a Chinese perspective. Eight years ago, actually the 10 years ago, I started my research on the air war in Korea from the communist side, not from the UN, American side. One of my research efforts is dedicated to my father. He was a PLAF officer and in the Korean War. And the photos I'm going to give to you later and you can, I will tell a little bit about uh, what his crew did and in Korea. So the book published in 2002, and that is eight years ago. And I still enjoyed very much myself in the memories of those people who helped me to write this book. At lunchtime, I talked to the uh, researchers of the museum. And w something came to my mind I want to remind you that is, what the story I'm going to tell you may not be the true fact. Because we can't stick to the fact and because human memories are biased. The history we try to understand, we try to learn. And so perhaps it's not the facts, but just what we want to know, we what believe it is. So the people who I interviewed during my research, I never think those people are dishonest. But however, the story I tell you may be not the truth, but however, is something deeply buried in their minds as part of the history of their own. And today I'm going to go over, uh, these are the five areas which are covered in the book, which I've written. And Mostly I focus on the Chinese side story. And there are two chapters talk about Soviet involvement. And I won't tell you anything about that and other than show you some slides. And if anyone wants to know what is the Russian's contribution to the air war in Korea, and I just wish you go to read my book. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm not trying to, uh, uh, to advertise my book, and 
I know the Texas A&M University Press has already happy enough for so many copies have been sold so far. I believe it's the third print and it's already tended to run out and shortly. Okay. The first thing I'm going to cover this is to talk about how the air power played a significant role in Chinese decision for intervention. It's an amazing story. And uh, since we have a free speech, free press, rights in the United States, so I'm able to tell this story. And this story that has never been told in China. And second, then we'll talk about what's the China initial plan and the strategy uh, for get themselves in the air war. And then I talk about uh, briefly about how they frustrated and tried to get that plan to go. And then I talk about Chinese air operation in Korea. And finally, I try to see what the experience, lessons they learned from the Korean War, and what the implication to them or to us who won't understand the growth of a Chinese air power in today's security environment. <clears throat> Almost, it's actually just one month away, 60 years ago, the Korean War broke out. And the last week, when the war started, Joseph Stalin sent a telegram to Beijing, to Chinese leaders. Ask the Chinese leaders to prepare their military for intervention. And in that telegram, Joseph Stalin promised he would send a MiG-15 division to China immediately to provide the air cover for the Chinese forces. At that time, Chinese Air Force just created a year ago, or less than a year ago, a 10 month. It only had a handful pilots haven't started from the mid-15 yet. And after receiving that telegram, the Chinese leader did think about to take some advanced preparation for what's so-called eventuality. One precondition is that the Chinese forces would have an air cover from Russia. So that Starling's promise to my study that is one of the key reasons for early Chinese de decision to prepare for possible intervention. And in August, I believe in the late August, 
that mixed division arrived in China. And in the meantime, Chinese moved their army troops to the borders and prepared for possible intervention. But when the situation turned around, in the September, and particularly when later and Chinese leaders and received a telegram from Kim Il-sung on August, uh, no, October 1st, just a few days before the fall of Pyongyang, I believe, and, and he urgently asked the Chinese for intervention. Because Stalin told him that is, you can't depend on us for help. You have to turn yourself to the Chinese. So after receiving the Kim Il-sung's telegram, more beginning to think about serious intervention. One problem he came across at the time, that is, who will command the Chinese forces in Korea to confront UN forces. And finally, he found a general on the General Pong. And he summoned him to the Beijing from the far west China to command him to the job. One thing more promised him than is, there would be an air cover from Russia. But when Pong went to the northeast China, tried to assemble the troops together, he asked the general who already in the region, and what about the cooperation between his ground troops and the air force? Nobody knows there, will, there would be an air force. So he sent a telegram back to Beijing, asked about the details air cover issues. It, uh, is that at that moment, the Beijing realized that the air cover is a big issue for possible Chinese intervention. So they sent another telegram to Moscow, asked for details about Russian air cover. And one of the reasons for that, uh, for Chinese generals urged Russian air cover because they, they had tremendous experience during the Chinese Civil War in the late 1940s when they experiencing the nationalist air power. And many knows that the U.S. air power is much powerful, stronger than the Chinese, national Chinese had. So when the Beijing's terrible went to the Moscow, and after Stalin made the promise, he went to his general about, to, for the consultation about how Russian Air Force can help the China. 
his general told him it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea to send the Russian Air Force and to China to get involved in Korea. And at least his general told the Stalin, Joseph Stalin that they were not ready yet. And the Stalin asked them how long they would be ready. At least two months and a half. So then Stalin sent the telegram that there was a problem for the Air Force air cover by Russian Air Force. So Chinese sent, then the China, the Chinese sent the Premier Zhou Enlai to Moscow immediately to negotiate about Soviet air power issues. And during that negotiation, Stalin told us all that his air force is not ready. And his air force could only provide the air cover at this point up to the Yalu River, not cross. And that created a big problem in Beijing. You, once you see the travel of a telegram back and forth, and the world carries permission. And the one the finally starting told John like that is his air force would be ready only in two months and a half. But at this point, you have to go into the career alone by your ground troops. So one more informed his general Pong, and I more point out the two things. Number one, he did not believe the air power should play a significant role in war. Number two, he already made mind to send the troops because geopolitical considerations. But however, his general react differently. And General Peng almost resigned from the position. And he flew back from northeast China and to Beijing. And Mao was had uh, Mao had the different time schedule than uh, anyone else. Mao tentatively sleep in the daytime and work at night. Right, and so the Peng returned to Beijing and in the daytime, ran into the Mao's of uh, Mao's uh, residence in the middle of the day, and more was sleeping. And, and woke up him and said he won't go. 
even without air cover. And, and, but however, more persuade upon that, they have to go. And of course, Stalin also sent a telegram convinced them all that he have to go. They talk about if you don't go this time, you're going to lose the Taiwan forever. Uh, some kind of argument made by Stalin. And Mao also said that is that's the Chinese way of thinking, and we never can think that way. One of the arguments Mao made that is if we go in Korea. We were beaten and pushed back by UN forces. But we can still go back later. And if we don't go at this time, and we cannot get in forever. So that is argument Mao made and to General Pong and said, you have to command your troops and go in Korea. And we still expect the Soviet Union to send their air force in two months and a half. So the hopes for the Soviet support is still there. So after the shuffle and back and forth, go and not go, and for almost a week, finally, by October 18, the decision was hammered. The troops go in Korea next day. So on October 19th, and the Chinese troops and across the Yalu River. And so that kicked off Chinese intervention in Korea. And now let's talk about China's airplane and strategy. My early slides point out that is. In October 1950, China did not have that real air force. Only, only a handful of pilots just started flying the MiG-15 solo under Soviet, under Russian pilots' instruction. Of course, no Chinese commanders and officers have a air combat experience, too. So nothing, zero. So what kind of strategy are they supposed to take? So they came out of what we call a prudent strategy, right? which means the accumulation of strength and concentrated employment in time and attack, which means you cannot send your forces as a piece of the meal and into the combat. You have to train them together and use them together, what we call concentrated employment in timely attack. And then they see this should get into the air war in two stages. And first, they should rush that regiment who already flying the MiG 15s and those uh, propeller and fighters at the time to go in and protect the transportation lines. And during this stage, it will be a learning period under the Soviet assistance. 
I want to point out that is, even though Stalin said his forces are, were not ready for intervention, but however, remember, Stalin already sent one mid division in China at that time. But that division were responsible, was responsible for defend the Chinese territory. So Yalu River is a part of their air defense mission. So that provide the Chinese a learning period to earn combat experience under the Soviet tutelage. That's why in the early November, UN pilots saw some actions in the air combat over the Yalu River. They were Russians. Right? They were Russians. And they were assigned to China for air defense. And the second stage, that is, since Chinese learned some air doctrine influenced or influenced by the Russians, the provide ground support is a major role for the Air Force. So in order to provide ground support, they need to build the airfield inside North Korea. Otherwise, and nothing can be done and for the ground support. And once the airfield completed, the China would able to send a significant number of aircraft to commence the full-scale air war in Korea. The time is set up in the spring 1951. That is also the time very close to the Russians were ready and to send their units uh, into Korea. So that is a, a plan or a strategy set up for Chinese Air Force intervention or involvement. So this slide shows that the first group of flying group of the 4th Division and sent to Korea in the late December as a learning experience for them. So that, you see that, eight pilots. And that's the same groups with their uh, division commanders and on their side. And this is the first pilot who claimed to shot down an American aircraft. And in the meantime, they're supposed to build the airfields. And what the airfield is supposed to build is all the major airfield is in this area, the Anjun area, in this later the area we know as Mig Alley, right, this airfield. I think the four airfields and in this area and then maybe two down the Pinyang and here. 
are the pinyon here, two we've done here, and the four in this area. <coughs> but what happened to the effort to construct the airfield? Chinese mobilized one army devoted to airfield constructions. They built the airfield at night. By daytime, they were bombed. They built again, and they bombed. And after several months, they realized that it's impossible to get that airfield serviceable. One problem that it caused Russians provide very limited assistance. And new units starting to get into China, starting to see from the November to October. But the two units designated for the Korean operation is sent to China in the December. And one of the story that here is that one Russian MiG division usually equipped with 120 MiGs. And one problem Russian come across that they have a shortage of the planes. So they have to break up that one normal air division into the two. So which means they're going to send one division to China only half strength of a normal unit. So 60 aircraft as one division. And those were sent to the China, they have an order from starting. That is, they only provide air defense in the rail. So they were restricted to go further down into the territory of North Korea. Second, Russian Air Force not ordered to cooperate with the Chinese ground operations. So no cooperation between Russian Air Force and the Chinese ground operations. What kind of ally you try to think about that is? Another problem and both the Russians and Chinese encountered was the short range of the MiG-15s. Since the MiG-15s cannot fly deep into the North Korean territory. And during my research, I tended to understand that each time when the MiG-15 take off from the airfield on the Chinese side of Yalu River, they can just take a circle patrol and come back in an hour, not longer than that. And I just told the people from the museum at lunch, I said that at the end, there were 800 Chinese pilots baptized in the air combat in Korea. But how many really actually saw the enemy plane? 
perhaps not many. And I interviewed a few pilots. They told me that if you were lucky enough, you see the enemy plane during your patrol. You see, okay, you saw them. The second lucky enough, what lucky enough for them is you could fire shots at them. Now think about whether you hit them or not. Fire a shot, and then you come back. The ground crew said, oh, your plane have opened the fire because of the smoke on the uh, fuselage. <laughs> that will be a good sign because you are engaged in combat. And so the short range of the MiG-15 is another problem for Chinese to think about implement their plan, which I said earlier. And because the Chinese finally realized that, they are unable to put those airfield serviceable and they are unable to put, send their air units into North Korea. So they cannot provide direct air support for the ground operations. And General Pong also become very angry about that. And at the time, Mao asked him to launch the sixth offensive campaign. If you study the Chinese side of the Korean War experience, they are already have a five offensive campaigns and launched, which pushed the UN forces uh, on the other side of 38 parallel. But when the UN forces hold the line, starting to push back the communist forces back to the, the, the 38th line, to hold that line, and the opponents starting to think about a sixth offensive campaign. And when he design that campaign, he expect air support. By June, I think by July, uh, perhaps by August, uh, the, the schedule pushed back and from April to May, then June started raining season and nothing can be done and pushed back to August and September. By that time, he realized that his sixth offensive campaign is, was unrealistic because he won't have air support. And so he decided to cancel that. And you can see that this air fuse has been repeatedly bombed by B-29. This is the map shows your Chinese uh, air operation, the range, and I maybe come back to this a little bit later. Okay. Uh, this map shows the MiG alley. No Chinese air operations. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Chinese intervention in the air war in Korea has uh, three stages. The first one, we talk really about preparations. Uh, it's a very long period of time of preparation and from November all the way up to
the September 1951. And then the second stage is from September 1951 to the early, I try to think about is uh, January or February 1952 as what we call learning period. And then uh, finally from that time to the end of the war they call full engagement. Uh, during the early stage they expect Soviet assistance, which means that each time their squadrons will take off behind the Russian flights. And in the early stage, they also tended to fly large formations with the 16 planes together. I tried to think about and why was that during my research. And number one is old tactic they learned from World War II. Number two, perhaps the young Chinese pilot would feel more secure <laughs> if they have 16 planes all together flying over the animal-controlled space, <laughs> airspace. That, that was a very sad story at one occasion. Right? I, be, I believe there are more patrols and over the North Korea's airspace and they came across nothing. Right. Once they came across the UN forces or F-86, that will be a bad day for them. And on one occasion, uh, one formation, 16 formation lost, I think six to seven planes just in one battle. Very, very, very bad in that. And so you just basically become uh, slaughtered by skillful UN forces. And that after the period of time of Soviet uh, tutelage, and they become called the independent operations. So they won't have, they would fly them on. But later, they do develop a technique themselves, feel that more edgy, more maneuverable, more operational is have a four planes as a one flight and flying at a different attitude and together. And so that will be uh, more operational or more better way and to do things. And the second, so, that is the theory Chinese came out after the Korean War. That is, Air Force did not strive for their own victory. Air Force would take the ground victory as their own. Do you follow that? So Air Force no need to make any effort for victory. As long as the ground troops can hold their territory, hold their position, and defeat the enemy. It is their victory. This is the mentality grown out from that war experience I won't go tell you later. So they, they concentrate on defending the key transportation lines. 
This is also very important. I want to show you, talk, uh, give you the uh, significance later, right? And and at this point, you just remember this, and they're assigned to defend the key transportation lines. So they never have air support for the ground operations, and so they're taking the ground victory as the air defense, air forces victory. Uh, at the end, China claimed it had shot down 330 UN aircraft. It lost 231 of its own aircraft. And in their claims, majority of those are F-86. I'll come back to justify this later, okay? And there are few cases I would like to show how the Chinese made that claim, and that will come back to what the justification. Okay. The first case, I talk about Zhang Jihui and George Davis. I don't know any, how many of you really know who is George Davis. He's a major, he's one of the well-known uh, Air Force A's and in Korean War. Uh, try to see, where, where is that photo? Oh, here we go. This is the, when I, do my, when I wrote my book and one of the Korean War veterans sent his uh, photo and uh, to me. And here, where is the George? Here is George Davis, a Texan and from Lubbock. Uh, he's very well known right, and in, uh, in the Korean War. And he had, for example, on the November 30, 1951, and he and his squadron slaughtered Chinese bomber fleet over the uh, small North Korean island called Tawa Island. And on November 30th, right, and Chinese sent and nine of those two, two and bombers to attack that island. And this is a unit. Uh, where, where my father serviced. At the time, my father was the political commander of the regiment. And this is the crew. This guy is my father's. Uh, he is under my father's command. At the time, he was a group leader. And during my research, I interviewed him. Of course, on that day, what happened to him and his crews or his group become a heroic action. And, and I just sit there and try to listen to him, what he told me. Perhaps the same story he repeated many, many times. 
And on that day, he lost four of the bombers. Four. And but the American claimed that they shot down nine, or the total is nine. Uh, five of them are injured, all of them injured, and the manager back, and the four was done. And this guy served as an escort with those propellant Law 11 fighters. And, and he was a group leader and flew in the as I think the nine formation he has here as a leader in the front. After I interviewed him, I went back to another Korean War veteran. He's a ground crew and served the same unit. He told me the different story <laughs> about him. You never can see from the official records. Uh, and he said that when he returned, when he returned, he almost collapsed. Cannot get out of the cockpit himself. Uh, he, to some extent, he even said his pants wet. <laughs> but of course, I never recorded that in my book. All right. <laughs> and and but I, I I tend to believe that you try to think about. Nine slow bombers slaughtered by a squadron of a flight of the uh, F-86. I think the George Davis claim shot down at least three. And, but I said they, they exaggerated because and each pass they have hit the plane, they thought they hit that must kill, and one the other uh, wingman or another leader of the wing and come over, hit the same plane and repeatedly. And so each one make their own claim. And so on. Uh, so that is, shows you what the George Davis was. And the only escort the, the bomber has is this uh, Law 11 and propeller fight, uh, fighters. And he had one shot okay, at one of F-86. And later claimed he shot down F-86 by propeller fighter. And during my research, I found out that he did hit that F-86, but never shot down that plane. That plane was flewed by, let me go, Flewed by Lieutenant Marshall, the guy here. And the 23 millimeter cannonball hit the, the steel plate on the, on, the, on the seat and locked him out. He passed out. The plane plunged almost to the sea level. He woke up and pulled the plane off. And so that's why uh, the Chinese pilot climbed. He shot down. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Marshall. Okay. Now back to the George Davis story. Uh, yeah. George Davis was a very aggressive pilot because he's so skillful in the World War II and in, also in the Korean War. Have a w very high kill. At that time, I think he already had six kills under his belt. And on that day mission, 
I think it's on April 12th. He's supposed to flew over the, uh, uh, I think, the Chongchong River and, oh, no, Dachong River and in the Andrew area. But he was not satisfied with that patrol. He told his women, said, let's go further. All right. Uh, I think he had uh, eight plane, eight machines, or six or eight. And he left the other back to, to the south, and he flew the further. And there he encountered, there he encountered and this guy. He encountered him. And then he later, and George Davis and claimed he shot down two mix on that moment in engagement. Later, he was shot down. And what later the Chinese found out that is, the both the wreckage of the George Davis plane and his plane very nearby. And when the American medium broadcast that the, one of their aces lost in Korea. The Chinese Air Command asked their forces to find out who got him killed. And the ground troops find out found the two wreckage and retrieve and the dog tag and other identifications and they credit him for the kill. And what the justification made for credit him because the Chinese claimed that no Russians plane supposed flying over that area at that time on that day. Yes, officially made true. But unofficially, once the plane you sent off in the sky, how do you know where they are going to fly over? So during my research, I tended to believe that as George Davis is truly shot down by Russians rather than by this guy. But however, he was credited by Chinese side. Because Chinese Air Force desperately needed some heroic story to mobilize the troops. You don't want to be a leader for troops being beaten by the other side. Am I right? So this become a perfect story for him to, to have a credit for the shutdown of George Davis. But can you argue this with Chinese about this? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> and the next case, then this come down to where those Chinese Air Force heroes come from? I told the researcher from the museum that is, during my research, I feel that is, come from individual personality. And some people have an outspoken personality, talk a lot. Others do a lot, not talking a lot. So those people do a lot and never talk a lot and may never can be credited. But those maybe do, did not really do anything but just talk a lot, always have been credited. All right. 
this is the, the next case, and then the, this, this pilot, should I say, where is him? No, I'll go, not go forward, I'll go forward. That's him. And he claimed at one day of a mission, he shot down four F-84s. Four. I tended to believe that each time the how many ammo he really left uh, in the gun barrel and after the shot. And, but at the end of the day, he was shot too, <laughs> being shot down too. Uh, when he rescued and come back, uh, lucky enough because those MiGs were shot down always over the friendly territory. They always can trip back, won't be sent to the POW camps. And so uh, he come back claiming that even though he was shot down, he, because he finished all of his ammo, and so he was finally shot down. But he claimed he shot four US air, uh, aircraft. And I tend to believe he shot nothing, but he talked a lot. And he did credit. Okay. Again, the same story. The Chinese commanders need the good news, not the bad, always the bad news. And the next case also tried to tell you what the, how they justify is uh, it's got Wang Hai and a f his flying group. And Wang Hai was considered as a Korean War hero, and also his uh, flying group was highly credited. And, and Wang Hai eventually made the commander of the PLA Air Force. Where's Wang Hai? No, I'm sorry. Oh, I have to go to that. Where's Wang Hai's group? That is Wang Hai and his flying group. And what interesting enough that is, all those people who claim they have heroes over the American pilots, they had experience being shot down. This, you see, I said Zhang Jihui was shot down. Liu Yutiu was shot down. He was shot down too. And, but then nevertheless, and he has maintained a record of four kills and five injured damages. And the last case is about Han Dutai and how 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 uh, Harold and Fisher. And perhaps only the case I tended to believe that kill should be credited to Chinese is this one. Right? Again in the April 1953, at the end of the day, and U.S. pilot become more aggressive because of cross over the Yalu tried to, and shot down those planes and the landing and take off. And that day, and Fisher did the same thing. And he was wingman. 
and Fisher shot down his leader, who, which was Landy. And in two encounters, because they're already in the landing pattern. Right? And, but Fisher thought he shot both of the Chinese aircraft. And, but actually, and he and shot down him over the Chinese airfield. But however, the Russian pilots also claim he was actually the, shot him down. And Fisher is interesting, repeated visit China and met him later. He was captured and stayed two years in Chinese prison. And this, you see that, that's one of the visits he made in his late years and during the Chinese Air Force Museum, as I can tell this. And, and he uh, passed away last year. I believe he has been here many, many times, and he passed. And he really got acquainted with him. And so this is the only story I tended to believe might be, should be credited to this young fellow and of that kill. Okay, how to justify the Chinese claims? They claimed shot down the 330 UN aircraft. To me, I believe that, and most of them, the F-86, to me, I believe that is an over-exaggeration. Right. And why they did so? Number one, the political correct made those people to think they have to make that claim. Even though they said they have a very strict rule to determine the kills. For example, the gun camera evidence. Other pilots witness. A ground evidence. They said all the three should come together and to verify a kill. But at the end, I believe that is if one of the rules can be used to justify the kill, they go ahead to do that. So that's why they have very high kills. And as they claim. I believe that both sides have exaggerated the claims, but the Chinese way over what they supposed to claim. And no one can see, can tell the truth. If anyone tried to question about whether they truly have that many, uh, that many F-86 being killed, and that is a big, uh, that means you are counter against political correct. That won't serve your individual good. Yeah, those are just photos. And those are the photos you can see the mixed crews of Russians and Chinese. They are playing the soccer game. Same as they have fun, all right? And Russians only credit this pilot 
as a Chinese ace. But he never got too far promoted because he's not an outspoken person. You see, you see those who are spoke talk back and always promoted faster, have better recognition. You see this called the division commanders are studying the gun camera film, try to verify the kills. Uh, that's a Russian footage, uh, gun camera film, and to show they are attacked on the B-29. Okay, those photos show the, the Russian crews. So they, the, on the top, you can see they're all dressed in Chinese uniform. Right? This is the Russian crews. Uh, the, the Russian uh, uh, gun camera f uh, footage and it shows the, the kills. Now, what did China gain from the war? First, Chinese Air Force expanded throughout the war. Started with four regiments. At the end, they have, oh, not a regime, regiment, I'm sorry, the typos, 66 and regiments. And started with about 100 aircraft, and now at the end of the war, they have more than 3,000 aircraft. And they also had eight, some 800 pilots, 58,000 ground personnel took part in Operation Korea. So, from the fourth size, and you can see the Chinese Air Force was growing significantly. I think that perhaps the one thing they should proud of themselves. From ground zero, nothing to one of the largest air force forces in the world. But they actually learned that is, it's a strong emphasis on air defense. And that is a hammer influenced, number one, by Soviet doctrine, which emphasized to gain air superiority through air defense, not through offensives, air offensives, or strategic bombing. And that is a control, completely contradictory to the theory given by Duhay and theory made by Mitchell. So that's why for a long, long time, Chinese Air Force were built up on the concept of the air defense for air superiority. So that is an institutional culture and strategic culture embedded deeply in the Chinese Air Force as a service organization. I just want you to remember this. Second, they're always discounting the role air power played in the war. Particular Chinese leaders, the more is especially, even his son was killed by American bombing. 
He did not believe the air power played a major role in the combat he could not win in Korea. And each time when the people from the Korean front come back to home, Beijing, he asked them what, really, what is really about the effect of air power. And each time he heard uh, the last casualties on the air bombardment on his forces, and he felt released because that proved his theory. And also strengthened his belief that a man could overcome weapons. He strongly believed that uh, even the, whether you have air power or not, it's not critical for him to win the war. But nonetheless, Chinese did recognize that they could not achieve the total victory because UN air superiority. And that's why they could not organize any daytime grunt war, grunt combat in the most part of the, during the most time of the war in Korea. And another lesson they learned from that is the air power have to be used with restraints. You see that you inside never allowed the bombardment on the other side of the Yellow River. The communists never allowed the air operation beyond the 38th parallel. So one lesson Simpson learned that is air power was more deterrent role, served a more deterrent role rather than offensive role. So that's why Chinese never appeared anxious to get air force involved in any other conf confrontation since the Korea they had involved. One major example is 1979 when the war broke out between China and, the and the Vietnam and Chinese again not use air force. Finally, what they got from the Korea that is, yes, the China Chinese air force was one of the biggest, but far from being the best. When the chief of the staff of the Air Force and claimed at that time China become an air power overnight, that is overstatement. Right? And China had a long way to go to be an air power themselves and since then. And one of the things I want to argue that the, the air power has a did have the limited role and from a Chinese perspective. For example, and 
they always can maintain their supply lines at night. And they did stockpile and a lot of the supplies during the war and because and which and never and strangled in the Chinese forces in the front. That's perhaps one of the reasons the war eventually have to end at the 38th parallel as it started. So that is one of the limitations about the air power. And so Korean War was really made the Chinese become obsessed with air defense. And of course, this is a mindset of, to, of also come from the so-called the nature of the people's war doctrine. Uh, and a strong air threat from the United States. And so they feel that the best way to build up the air force is for air defense, not for offense. And the Chinese air force are not designed as a separate stru uh, strike force, but subordinate armed forces. You see, like I said earlier, they took the army's victory as their own. That's one best example. And I already said, Great Lines Air Power could have escalated the conflict. So Air Power cannot be used and employed with the free hand. So this is the conclusion I'm going to make. And for the past 60 years today, when we think about Korean War, when we think about what the Chinese Air Force had been done, they has devoted energy and resources to developing a modern Air Force. But that effort has been always frustrated by the Chinese leaders' misunderstanding of the role the Air Force supposed to play and a misunderstanding of the experience the Air Force had in Korean War and later the homeland air defense operations during the Cold War. So their misstanding of by ignorance the actual role of the air force, air power can play. And I said at the very beginning that is Chinese side of the story about air combat in Korea and later and was unbroken string of the victory and heroism. I never dare to challenge you about that myself. But however, few have dared question the legitimacy of this record and stories. That's really sad size about themselves. Sometimes I talk to the Chinese Air Force officers I said, if you want, really want to be a grown-up in terms as an air power country, you have to recognize the truth about yourself. Until then, you never can be fully grown. And
So those accounts led not only to the distortions, but also to self-delusion that perpetuated the view of the Chinese Alpha as defense or deterrence force. So that's why I said what Korean War experience means to Chinese Air Force. That means that they always consider themselves more like defense forces than offensive forces. Play a deterrence role rather than for offensive role. So today, Chinese Air Force adopted a new doctrine called the Chinese Air Force must be go both offensive and defensive. But unless they truly understand what offensive means to the air power, as long as the defensive emphasis remained part of the doctrine, I don't think it will fully become offensive air force. That's my view. And although the speed of the Chinese air and space modernization has caused concern in the West, progress is always likely to be con constrained by the technological limitation of the Chinese defense industry and by resources needed to support modernization. That's true. Right? But more important, perhaps even more important, essential, is that the air and space transformation will continue to be tempered by inherent differences in the institutional culture of the PLA ground forces and the PLAF. So people ask me, what is the true problem for the Chinese Air Force for, their moderni for its modernization? I told them, I told my students at Air War College, I said, it is institutional culture of the Air Force. Because that institutional culture inherited from Korea as a defense force rather than offensive force. My next article I'm going to write and for the RAND organization that is what growth of the air power in China today has any impact on Chinese leadership decision in the future. I will perhaps go with this line of argument that is, for forces never think itself to be used as an offensive force ever in their own history or their own experience. And to what extent at the time which arise to the point they want to use the Air Force as an offensive weapon? What is a gut feeling they can come out to believe that service, armed service, can do the job offensively because they have no such institutional culture ever developed themselves. So to me, the development of the institutional culture will take much, much longer time to be a service to embrace both offensive and defensive capability as an independent strategic force. So that is the true challenge for the Chinese Air Force 
to face today and the near future. That is why the study of the Chinese air combat experience in Korea is very important, is critical.